Hello and welcome to the Feeling Good Podcast. I am your host, Fabrice Nye, and joining me here in the Murrieta Studios is Dr. David Burns. Hi, David. Hi, Fabrice. Dr. David Burns has been a pioneer in the development of cognitive therapy, and he is the creator of the new team therapy. He is the author of Feeling Good, which has sold over 5 million copies in the United States and has been translated into over 20 languages. He is an emeritus adjunct clinical professor of psychiatry at the Stanford University School of Medicine. Welcome to episode 41 of the Feeling Good podcast, and today we are going to talk about the third uncovering technique, the what-if technique. Um, and uh, so, David, um, what what differentiates this uh, this technique from the other two that we've looked at, especially from the individual downward arrow? Yeah, the the, the three downward arrow techniques uh, are the individual downward arrow, the interpersonal downward arrow, and the what-if technique. And in the two previous podcasts, we covered the individual downward arrow, and the, and the goal there is to get to these self-esteem equations, the individual self-defeating beliefs like perfectionism, right. achievement addiction, approval addiction, and things of that nature. Yeah. Uh, in the interpersonal downward arrow, <clears throat> you, you get at the way people set up r- relationships, the expectations that we have. Yeah, that the can, rules. Yeah, the rules of, of relationships that can lead to uh, either conflicted, problematic relationships or, or loving, joyous ones. In the what if technique, uh, we're all we're trying to uncover a fear, a core feared fantasy that's uh, underneath uh, someone's anxiety disor- disorder. So, in all three of these, we're going for the deeper structures in the brain or or in the psyche. But in the what if technique is specifically designed for anxiety disorders. I created the first two individual and interpersonal downward arrow techniques. And then Albert Ellis, the noted and somewhat notorious, yeah. uh, <laughs> amazing but controversial late psychologist from uh, New York City, uh, I believe he was the uh, creator of the what-if technique. I think he was only controversial because he used a, a lot of curse words and he was uh, unwavering in his uh, confidence. <laughs> exactly. That's yes. what happens. You know? <laughs> right. People don't like that. Uh, right. Well, some people do. You know, your <laughs> followers do, and the yeah. people that don't like you kind of get polarized against you when you take a real extreme position. But he made a lot of uh, tremendous, uh, tremendous controversial, uh, tremendous contributions, but was a extremely colorful uh, figure. I I happen to, to like him and admire him. Yeah, a lot. I like him too. I mean, I think he's the first one I discovered in, uh, in the cognitive behavioral uh, therapy field. And I really, I really took a liking to a liking to the guy, in spite yeah. of his curmudgeonliness. Well, the thing is, he was, he was honest. You know? He had yeah. integrity and, and yeah. didn't try to steal from other people and call it his own. And uh, that that was one of the things I really, really loved about him. Yeah. So the what if technique? Should we dive in? You you yeah. you were also making a comment before we started. How if you're a therapist listening, or I suppose a general citizen type as well. Uh, that you were saying sometimes you'll start with one technique and then veer off in, into yeah, a different I, one. Yeah, I, I wanted to wait until you kind of explained it a little bit to to interject that, yeah. But we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Okay, S- super. Well, uh, the, the what-if technique, I've got a great uh, vignette uh, to illustrate it, plus some neat 
a PowerPoint presentation and uh, have a new tool now. I can embed PowerPoints right into. I know that's quite uh, nifty. I saw yeah, that, yeah, right into our uh, our show notes. You, so you may I, want to um, add a, a PDF for people who, for some reason, cannot view that. I I don't know if oh, everyone has the technology. Yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah, sure. I can. Not I, sure. I can do that. Uh, uh, as well. Now, in, in the what-if technique, and any of the, these three downward arrow techniques, you always start with a thought uh, from a daily mood log, and and then you say uh, to, to the patient or the client, whatever word you use, or, or to yourself if you're doing it yourself, but you say you draw a downward arrow underneath the negative thought, and you say, if this were true, what's the worst that could happen? What What are you the most afraid of? Yeah, and, and then whatever the client says, you you say write that down. Put a new, and we'll illustrate this here in just a yeah. moment. Put a new downward arrow under it, and 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 then if that were true, what's the worst that could happen? What right. are you the most afraid of? And so we get at an increasingly, you know, frightening fantasies until you get to this this core core fantasy that's at the root of your fears. And so really, there so far the difference is you use a different question. You right. start the same way if this were true, but instead of saying, uh, what would that mean to you? What would that be upsetting? You would say, um, you know, what is the worst that could happen? What are yeah. you afraid of? You know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, in fact, in, in workshops, I sometimes give a humorous example, like you might have the fear in a workshop. Uh, well, if I get up and do a role play with David, I might make a fool of myself. Yeah. And then, if that were true, what would happen? What are you the most afraid of? Well, then people in the audience will judge me yeah. and dislike me. And, yeah. and, and well, I suppose that happened. What are you the most afraid of? Well, they'll all tell other people yeah. uh, after the workshop. There's you know. the brush fire fallacy. <laughs> yeah, again, the brush yeah. fire fallacy. So tell people what a loser I am, and I'm an inept uh, therapist. And, and say, so, well, suppose each one tells five others, then then what are you afraid of? Well, then they'll each tell five others, and this thing will spread like brush fire. Yeah. So by the next morning, say I'm speaking in Philadelphia, there's a headline in the Philadelphia newspaper, therapist blows it in work- workshop, thousands flee in terror, lives destroyed, <laughs> this type of thing. Yeah. And uh, that, that that's kind of what you're trying to get at, that core fantasy that's fueling fueling your fears. I think the existentialists would say that uh, at the bottom of all this, there's always a fear of death. Well, uh, actually, that's the uh, the famous uh, Stanford psychiatrist. I'm trying to think of Yalom. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. he made that that uh, that claim. I, I would say, in my experience, that's virtually never true. Oh, uh, tell me why. Interesting. Yeah. Well, the only people who I, in my practice who ever were afraid of death were people with panic attacks who had the thought, "I'm about to have a heart attack and die." But aside from that, this uh, claim that Yellum has made, uh, I've treated, I've had you know over thirty-five thousand therapy sessions with anxious individuals, and aside from the the few with panic attacks, and and we've talked, you know, that's an easily one of the easiest, fastest things to treat in all of uh, psychiatry. I think we've given an example of that in an earlier yeah. podcast. Um, but aside from uh, those few patients who had the, the the fear of death, I've never seen it in in and in, in anyone else, and we're going to have. I, I've had some some patients really uh, say that no, uh, then I'm going to die. 
Um, so that has happened to me. Well, we had that podcast on how to overcome that fear, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. It's, it's but, pretty you know, easy but to treat. Often this, uh, this what-if technique goes down to very survival-level issues, like oh, I'm going to be homeless, yes. oh, I'm yes. going to be had, broke, I'm going to starve. Be, yeah, I'll be begging going, on the street, yeah. and that, that my, my career will be ruined. Yeah. Oh, yes, I see that a lot. I used to see that a lot with attorneys I would uh, treat. They they all seemed to have this fear they were going to blow a case in court, and, and then they'll go bankrupt, and yeah. then their loved ones will leave them, and then they're, they're begging you know, on the streets of San Francisco with a tin cup for... In a way, this may not exactly be the fear of death, but it's the fear of life, the fear of life in a degraded mode. Yes, yeah, that's a yeah. good, that's a cool way of looking at it. Well, I've got a great vignette, and, and like uh, always, I'll, I'll disguise the identi- identity of as the, we always uh, do. Yeah, but this was a really lovely woman from uh, San Francisco who came to me uh, with uh, more than a decade of. I would say mild to moderate depression, but severe agoraphobia. And she came from a a famous, uh, wealthy San Francisco family and was living in downtown San Francisco with her her two sons. She was divorced. They were about, you know, 9 and 11 years old or something in that that range. And um, I wanted to find out, you know, why... What was behind her agoraphobia? She she was afraid to leave home alone without a trusted friend or companion. That's pretty much the definition of of, of agoraphobia. Um, and so, uh, since thoughts cause all of our positive and negative emotions, I, I said, you know, what? Suppose you 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 left your apartment. You said there's a you know a grocery store three blocks away, and you, you walked to the grocery store. What are you afraid of? What, what's the worst that, that, that could happen? And the thought she had was, and you can watch this on the PowerPoints. Um, let me see if I can get this working here. Uh, she said, I, I, I might drop my handkerchief. Uh, and so <laughs> I'll be I'll be the patient, and you can be my shrank. And and so I, I asked her to write it down and draw a downward arrow on, under it. And then right. uh, you you ask the downward arrow question. So so uh, you might drop your handkerchief. And let's assume that that happened. What are you the most afraid of? What is the worst that could happen then? Uh, well, a murder might be committed right on the spot <laughs> where I drop my my handkerchief, and we shouldn't we should say well, that let, we're not laughing at this. No, we're not we, laughing at the patient. Uh, sorry, but, <laughs> but sometimes uh, it's when you look a, at a different perspective, our I fears know, are. I know. So uh, let's keep our composure and yeah. let's assume that happened. What are you the most afraid of? What's the worst that could happen? Oh, well, uh, then the police might find the handkerchief and think that I did it, that I was the one who, who committed the murder. Well, let's assume that happened, and then what's the worst that could happen? Um, well, I'd end up in prison uh, for life. Okay, and let's assume that happened. What are you the most afraid of? What's the worst that could happen? It was a long pause, and she started to get tearful, and then she said, well, then my sons would, would grow up without their mother. Now, when somebody, and this is kind of her, her root fear. Now, when, when someone gets tearful, I like to kind of empathize and put the tool on the shelf temporarily 
and find out what's what's going on. So and I said, what did you say to her? Well, then? I, I said it sounds like there's something about your sons growing up without their mother. That the, the, is there some issue with your sons that you're concerned about your sons? It's kind of a hidden emotion type of yeah, question. a little bit, yeah. And and then she said, well, you know, her sons uh, were in uh, public school and. They were troublemakers, and they were flunking their classes, and so she put them in a very expensive uh, private school, but, but, but the same thing was happening. Um, she said that she and her, her husband, they're divorced, and, and they have these acrimonious arguments on the telephone about what's the best way to raise the kids, and one says they need more love, the other says they need more discipline, so the kids are getting caught up in this battle between the two of them. And, and she said that uh, somebody uh, in their neighborhood had been uh, throwing stones at people's windows, breaking windows, and causing problems. And so the, the, there were a lot of complaints to the, the local police, and so they kind of put out a dragnet to try to catch whoever was doing this vandalism. Yeah. And uh, one night, she said, just last week, the police came knocked on her door, and uh, they had... Uh, found the culprits and they had her two sons there yeah and told her that if uh, this didn't stop uh, they'd have to arrest them and uh, maybe put them in foster care or you know go to juvenile sure, yeah home. right yeah yeah and th- this was very very uh, dis- disturbing uh, to to her now uh, freud had this concept i'm not too over the top enthusiast for freud but he did have some good some good stuff and he had this thing he called the uh, the masochistic solution and the masochistic solution is that you're allowed to punish the people you love you can be angry with them and punish them if you punish yourself more and i was like this will hurt me more than they will hurt you right (laughs) yeah so you kind of hide your your motive that that way you see and you can see here that here was this very nice woman who who was probably secretly angry with with her with her with her kids yeah with her boys but being a very nice person as she was she feels she's not allowed to be angry with anybody so she sweeps it under the carpet mm-hmm. but notice in I her heard f- you say once that uh, you know anxious people are always nice people oh yeah and we'll, <laughs> we'll get into that more uh, and and you know the next broadcast when we'll talk more about this hidden emotion uh, model and and technique. But you notice here that she goes to prison for life, so she's yeah. being punished in this fantasy. But do you notice that she's rejecting her boys? See, my boys would grow up without their mother, so in her fantasy, she, she's punishing them. But it's a fantasy that she doesn't want. Oh, right, right. But it's the fantasy at the root of her anxiety, yeah, yeah. and it's the fantasy of punishing her boys, right. but she hides her anger by punishing herself more in this fantasy. Right. You see? Wow. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's my speculation, but I can't guarantee it's 100% true. But I, I talked with her about the fact that maybe in addition to working on your agoraphobia and confronting this fear, maybe you would need some help dealing with your sons. And and maybe, you know, I'm not sure I'm the greatest expert in the world, but I think I could help help you develop more of a tough love kind of uh, 
program for them if if you wanted so you'd have a systematic way of of shaping their behavior and and in addition if you implemented this with the support of your ex-husband i have no doubt it would be effective but then you'd have to learn to develop a better relationship with him right and i can show you how to do that using the five secrets of effective communication but if you didn't want to I would totally accept that and sure. understand that, and and because most divorced people do like to kind of fight and blame each other and aren't looking for a better relationship. Yeah. But she bought it, and I taught her the five secrets. And she, uh, instead of arguing and putting her husband down all the time, she began to use the disarming technique and stroking and empathy and inquiring. He, he ate it up and was kind of eating out of her hand pretty quickly. Right. And together they developed a kind of a tough love program to to discipline the kids, and it worked rapidly. Mm-hmm. And she got a call from uh, school that the boy's behavior had had radically changed. And in fact, one of her sons became elected uh, the class president, which was a, a shock. Absolutely, yeah. And at that point, her, her depression went away, but she still had the this agoraphobia. And so once you have this root fear, then uh, you, you've got to confront the fear once you uh, reveal it with the, with the what-if technique. Right. The technique I, I, I used was flooding, uh, which is just the most extreme form of exposure and i told her for her homework shoot there was a park uh i think you know golden gate park was just you know a number of of blocks from where she lived and and she she knew of a particularly particular park bench there and i I said i want you to go on a saturday morning to, to golden gate park and no matter how anxious you get you're not allowed to flee and, and run home. Right. But you can write down your anxiety, bring a like a clipboard or something, and put every minute how anxious you are from zero to 100 and what fantasies you're having that are terrifying you. So she was a good egg, and, and she was really determined. And that's Did you ask her to drop her handkerchief, too? <laughs> no, I forgot to do that. <laughs> that would have been a good one, to bring 10 handkerchiefs and drop them, <laughs> leave a trail of handkerchiefs. She was quite wealthy and <laughs> would have been able to do that. But at any rate, so she, she gets out. She starts walking toward this bench at the park, and she's 95% anxious, and she wants to run home because she's just sure that yeah. she's going to get arrested for some crime she didn't commit. And right. So, but she remembers her her commitment. I told her if you can't stand the anxiety, you can bring a little uh, like a Rubik's cube or something, a toy to to, 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 to distract, distract yourself. yourself. Yeah. And that's that's another technique uh, d- distraction. It's it's my least favorite of my fifty techniques I teach my my well, students. It, it takes a little bit away from the uh, yeah from the ex- exercise itself. Yeah. Right, but I wanted to give her some kind of an escape valve so so she wouldn't run. So home. she wouldn't run home yeah. exactly. Yeah. So she went and uh, sat on this this park bench, and she's ninety five percent anxious and struggling with this urge to run home and she's just sure she's going to getting about to get arrested and then she saw this this police officer about uh, maybe 50 yards away and now her anxiety is going up to you know toward 96 percent 97 percent and she's trying to sit motionless like a statue 
uh, hoping that he won't <laughs> he won't notice her, but she's peeking out of the corner of her eye, and instead of walking away, he turns right toward her and starts walking right toward, toward it's her. Like oh my god, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So now her anxiety is up at a hundred percent, and she wants to run and try to get away from him, but she remembers her commitment, so she pulls out this Rubik's cube, and she's sitting there and staring at it and all of a sudden she sees two black shoes right right in front of her and she realizes that it's the policeman and that he's there to arrest her and so she holds her hands up in the air like this okay you can you can put the handcuffs handcuffs on on me and i won't i won't protest and then she recognizes this irish cop who she's known ever since she was a little girl um, officer o'reilly yeah and he says uh oh top of the morning to you Kristen." Uh, so great to see you here out and about on a Saturday morning. Isn't it a beautiful day we're having here uh, in, in Golden Gate Park? And she can't believe that he's uh, he's not arresting her. And she says her anxiety went from 100 to zero like in a second. Mm-hmm. And she jumped up off of the park bench and she had a wonderful uh, conversation with him. She was all animated and excited. And, and then he went on his beat and then she 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 took the cable car uh, went went downtown she went to museums she went to to boutiques she she did all the things for 5 hours that she had been unable to do for the for right. the previous 12 12 years and so that that's an illustration uh, not only of the what if technique but also uh, uh, flooding extreme exposure yeah. uh response prevention too she's not i told her you're not allowed to do the your, your normal thing of running uh, away. Right, exactly plus the uh, the hidden emotion technique uh, as as well as some five secrets of effective communication and some problem solving uh, to address the the problem with her children so this was a person where a number of techniques coalesced together uh, that all worked together for her 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 recovery yeah um you know it's good that uh, you're talking about this because a lot of people may wonder so once we haven't covered what do we do with it and when it comes to fears the exposure is um, often the the go-to method and uh, i i uh, went to a, a conference a few weeks ago where there was a research paper that was presented where they had studied um, the uh, the exposure um, methods. And uh, one thing they found was that um, um, in exposure, it uh, doesn't seem to be necessary for the fear to go down to zero or even to a low value during the exposure. What is necessary is that the uh, the patient be exposed to a contradiction between their fear and what's really happening in reality. Oh yeah, right. So there's like this this cognitive dissonance that creates some some resolution. Yeah, and you can we can talk about that more um, when we talk about ex- ex- exposure. You can set the exposure up as an experiment to test a, a, a patient's belief. Yeah. Um, uh, for example. I had a woman uh, who approached me uh, after a, a workshop I was doing in Denver on anxiety disorders, and I'd asked for a live volunteer. And 
she was afraid to volunteer for the live demonstration, but at, at the end, I was packing up my, my uh, these were days when I used, you know, overheads rather than the, the PowerPoint yeah. projection. I was organizing them and packing them up, and, and she came up and, and said, uh, oh, uh, by the way, I've been in psychoanalysis for 25 years for uh, my uh, elevator phobia. Yeah. And uh, I just wanted to ask, you know, I, I wanted to volunteer for the live demonstration, but I, I don't know, you know, how much longer do you think it would take to overcome my elevator phobia? She asked me, when you treat people, how, how long does this, you know, treatment usually last? Yeah. And, you know, how many more years should she endure this five-day-a-week free association? Right. And I, I said, well, uh, I, I, I can... I can usually complete a course of uh, treatment for an elevator phobia in about seven to ten minutes. And so if you'd like, you know, I can just cure you right now while I'm uh, packing up my overheads. And she said, well, how, how would you do that? And I said, oh, it's easy. There's a, an elevator right over there. It's, there's four, stair, four stories up and down. You just just get on there and, and stay on there until you're cured, and I'll... I'll just wait for you here. I'll finish pick, packing up my my stuff, and then when you're here, you can come on back. And then she said, "Oh no, no, that, that I could never do do that. You'd have to get with me on on, on the elevator." And I said, "Oh no, that's no good because then you won't be frightened. I, I, you've got to get on there and freak out." And and she says, "Well, please, if you come with me, I, I promise I'll I'll freak out even if you're you're with me." I said, "Yeah, but you'll be too." too reassured if I'm with you. You've got to confront the fear. She says, oh, no, it'll be just it'll be just as bad if you're with me. And she says, okay, I'll come on with you, but what are you afraid of that's going to happen? And she said, well, and this comes to your point about this contradiction. Uh, she said, I'm afraid the uh, walls will close in and, and the air yeah. will disappear. I had a patient say exactly the same thing to me, yeah. Oh, yeah, because you did one just I recently. Did, yeah, yeah. Yes, I, I'm eager to find out how that, how that worked. So I'll make my story quick. So we we got on the elevator, and she's like 95% anxious. And I and I said, well, you know, you promised me you'd freak out, and, and I wanted 100, not 95. And most therapists try to control the anxiety. I always do the opposite. Uh, yeah. The attempt to control the anxiety is the cause of, of the anxiety. And uh, so I said, let's freak out. Put your hands here on, on, the, on the walls. I think I can feel them moving. Now, and we're probably going to get crushed. And she put her hands in the elevator starting to go up toward the second floor. She says, well, they don't seem to be moving. And, and I said, well, take a deep breath. I think the oxygen is disappearing. You'll probably not be able to, to take a deep breath. And then she said, there seems to be plenty of oxygen in here. And we, now we're up to about the third floor heading to the fourth. And I said, how anxious are you? She says, Dr. Burns, I've got some I'm so apologetic Bad, bad, bad news. I said, what's that? She said, my anxiety is just zero. This thing is just, just ridiculous. I don't have an elevator phobia anymore. And, um, and that's combining a cognitive technique with, with, with the exposure that we're testing the thoughts d during the exposure. So it, it's, it's, uh, it's a little different way of using exposure and to my way of thinking a more powerful one. And, and one of the academic arguments is that people have is that the exposure per se or the discovery during the exposure that your negative thought 
is not true because the necessary and sufficient condition for emotional change is that the necess- or the let's say the sufficient condition to take a page out of your book is that the patient no longer believes the negative thought at right. the moment the patient doesn't believe the negative thought the right. symptoms will typically disappear right yeah it's that uh, they they uh, seem to say that this had to do with memory reconsolidation you know when uh, when we remember something we transform it and oh, when, yeah. when, you, when you put it back it's like it's changed and so if you reconsolidate in a way that's totally contradictory um, this uh, seems to be uh, therapeutic. Uh, I have a question. So, as I mentioned before, um, um, the uh, I, I use the what if technique uh, in my practice, and I also use the uh, individual downward arrow. Oh, good. And when do you like them? I do. Yes. Good, cool. I mean, I, it's some of my favorite techniques because. Uh, it goes from the surface down to to something deeper. But what I find is that when I do the individual downward arrow, people will sometimes come up with uh, with fears. Yeah. And and I often switch and say, well, what if this were true? What uh, what is the worst that could happen? What are you afraid of? And so I kind of switch between the downward arrow and the the what if technique. Uh, is am I you know am I doing things wrong, doctor? <laughs> <laughs> no, that that's the way you should do it. These are fluid techniques; they're not sticks or rigid, stiff yeah. pro- pro- protocols. I I've seen it go in the other direction too. I had a patient who was afraid to criticize me, uh, and he'd give me low marks on empathy, but he would never say anything negative. I'd say it sounds like you're a little turned off and he'd say oh the therapy's good the techniques are wonderful and he would would change the subject and so i i asked him i started out with the what if technique and and said well let's say that you did finally agree to criticize me uh what are you afraid of what's the worst that could happen and he said right away well then you'll get upset and and reject me yeah and, and I won't be able to work with you anymore. And then I said, oh, my goodness, this sounds like an interpersonal downward arrow. Uh-huh. So so then I said, well, let's say that happened. What would that tell you about the kind of guy I am? Right. And, well, that would mean Burns is fragile and narcissistic and mean <laughs> and dangerous and powerful. Oh, you had a very accurate view. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, then, and then what would be your role in the relationship? Well, his role is to be submissive and, and, and weak and right. hide, his, hide his feelings. And then uh, what are the rules of the relationship? Well, the rule to relate to me has to be always agreeing with me and doing what I ask him to do and never sharing his his negative feelings and always being polite and submissive and, and, and so forth. And that was, of course, the root of all of his problems because he came not only for horrific depression but for severe social anxiety. Right. Uh, he, he, every time, he, he in particular, he was afraid to eat with people, especially women he was attracted to for fear he'd start vomiting all over them. Yeah. Um, and so then af- after this system came out with the interpersonal downward arrow, then again, I wanted him to confront his fear. And I, I really told him that he, he really had to criticize me, that the, the time has come. And then he, he criticized me, and I, I, I complimented on him. I, I stroked 
I stroked him. I, I, I gave him really warm, uh, uh, you know, congratulations for having done that. And he opened right up and uh, be, began to say all the things he'd been afraid to say. And we had the greatest session ever. And he came in a week later to make a long story short, and he was uh, com- completely free of all of his symptoms. He'd started eating in front of people and asking out attractive women and, and, and things of things of that nature. So when when you're when you're doing these techniques, any kind of uncovering technique, you you then want to go in with techniques to help the person change it. On rare occasion, the insight as to what your core beliefs are that are getting you into trouble, maybe one patient in ten or less, just the insight is enough to change them. But but usually you you have to use some powerful techniques to change those those beliefs. All right. Well. Thank you. That this is uh, this is very useful, very interesting, and uh, I wanted to to also add um, that we did this uh, series of three uncovering techniques. But um, there's, uh, I mean, there's other ways to uncover. But there's at least one fourth one that we haven't talked about. That's maybe a little bit different, and we've mentioned it in the past. And, and, and today, the, actually, and yeah, we have mentioned it today. That's right. The hidden emotion. Yeah, and. Uh, um, this won't be part of this series, but uh, this will come up in, in the next uh, uh, series of podcasts we're going to do on OCD, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you know, people stay tuned and uh, yeah. there's uh, more fun to be had. Yeah, great. Thank oh, you. Thank you, David. This has been another episode of the Feeling Good Podcast. For more information, visit Dr. Burns' website at feelinggood.com where you will find the show notes for this podcast under the blog page and where you can leave your comments and questions. The website has an abundance of resources for therapists as well as non-therapists, including books, workshops, a list of online training groups around the world, and much more. Theme music is Gypsy Jazz in Paris, 1935, composed and performed by Brett Van Donzel. I am your host, Fabrice Nye, and I invite you to join us next time for another episode of the Feeling Good Podcast.